The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Maybe not so passive after all what Elon Musk is asking his Twitter followers just hours after disclosing a nearly 10% stake in the company. Manhattan real estate boom, a Big Apple rebound that has some doubters shocked as a new report shows just how expensive things are getting. Call it the commodity super cycle. Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry out with a new report, sticking with his bullish call for crude. Kicking its shareholder activism into third gear, a worldwide exchange exclusive with Cowsters and their ESG investment pledge. Later on, rising real estate risks out west as California faces a tug of war between building new homes running out of water. It is Tuesday, April 5th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Before we get to, you know, all the news, a big congratulations to your NCAA men's basketball champions, the University of Kansas Jayhawks, coming back from a huge halftime deficit to beat UNC 72-69. At the half, Kansas was actually down by as much as 15 points, but they were able to come back, pull out a win. This is Kansas's fourth NCAA title, the first since 2008. So big congrats to all you Jayhawks fans out there in New Orleans who are, if you're watching, it means you are still up. Not that you got up, but that you are still awake. So laissez les bon temps brûler. All right, let's kick things off now with a check on the markets and your money right now. Stock futures, they are, I mean, when I say mildly higher, I mean up like a couple of points. But this coming off a huge gain for the NASDAQ and many big tech stocks on Monday, in particular, Chinese tech stocks boomed. The top three names of the NASDAQ 100 were all China-based companies like Pinduoduo. In bonds, that two- and ten-year yield curve is still inverted, but barely by one basis point. So now some investors are watching even longer dated bonds with the 30-year yield. And that is right now still above that of the two-year. So that, the 230, is not inverted. By the way, if you are worried about the so-called inversion in bond yields, you will want to hear your RBI this morning. It may give you a little bit of comfort around the stock market and all this talk about inverted yield curves. Well, oil is not comforting to anybody right now. And oil prices, they are back on the rise. Crude oil back above 104 bucks right now, even with many harsh lockdowns still happening in China. There is more talk of direct sanctions on oil and gas from Europe. And the last Russian crude is set to hit U.S. ports in about 10 days. Could get tight out there. In the crypto market, we are seeing both Bitcoin and Ether on the rise right now. Bitcoin staying above 46,400. You can see all the major coins are higher. All right, let's get some of the key headlines and market action happening overseas. And for that, Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with more. Juliana, good morning. 
Brian, good morning. Great to see you. European equities this morning are extending gains following yesterday's decent session. Right now, the stock 600 is up about a third of a percent. Brian, you mentioned talk about potentially targeting a Russian oil and gas specifically. That is a hot topic this morning. European leaders meeting in Luxembourg today, and there is talk about um, European leaders trying to coalesce around this idea of targeting Russian oil and gas specifically. No unity yet. There is divided opinion with in Europe on that topic. We also just learned that Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, will be traveling to Kiev this week to meet with the president of Ukraine. So a significant development in the last half an hour or so. From a market perspective by region, this is the picture for Europe. The majority of the major indices are trading higher this morning. We do have a little bit of red on the board, FTSE 100 and the CAC 40. From a sector perspective, this is what the picture looks like. We got some fresh PMI data through this morning. Services and composite final figures for March. And what was really interesting, Brian, was that they were better than the flash estimate. So business activity was strong for the month of March, but prices are soaring and the expectations coming out of those surveys is much more downbeat. So this is the picture. Chemicals outperforming, basic resources underperforming. Brian, back over to you. That is the picture. That is the news. Juliana Tadamont, thank you very much. All right, let's stay with the news and get some of this morning's top corporate stories, including more on the stock news that kind of rocked the markets yesterday. Elon Musk revealing a huge stake in Twitter. Bertha Coombs is here now with more on that. Bertha kind of shocked everybody. Yeah, that was a wild one yesterday, Brian, sending Twitter up 25% in the pre-market. Good morning. It's been less than 24 hours since Elon Musk disclosed his more than 9% passive stake in Twitter, but he's already making waves. Tesla and SpaceX CEO tweeting just after 8 p.m. last night to his more than 80 million followers, hey, do you want an edit button? With more than 2 million responses, with a majority saying yes, Musk is already, according to some, crossing the line between passive shareholder and activist investor. Now, keep in mind, if Musk wanted to enact change at Twitter, which he often hinted at when it comes to crypto scams and free speech on the platform as recently as a week ago, he would need to alert the SEC and file new paperwork to be in compliance. Twitter, by the way, is coming off its second best day ever since going public. Manhattan residential real estate, mind the Stocks up about 3% this morning. Meantime, Manhattan residential real estate sales topped $7 billion in the first quarter, marking its strongest ever start to a year. That according to new data from Miller, Samuel and Douglas Element. Sales in the first three months of the year were up 46% year on year, with total sales volume surging 60% to $7.3 billion. The average price of a Manhattan apartment is now just north of $2 million. And Amazon is pushing back on a report that a planned internal messaging app for its workers is banning words like union, restroom, pay raise, and plantation. In a statement to CNBC, Amazon says, in part, there are no plans for many of the words you're calling out to be screened. The only kinds of words that may be screened are ones that are offensive or harassing. That is, if the program even launches at all. Brian, Amazon shares this morning are flat here in the pre-market and flat for the week. Over to you. 
Well, going back to the Elon Musk thing, you know, he put out that poll about what what he wants done on Twitter, and he misspelled yes, that's not us. He misspelled it. He was in Berlin two days ago. <laughs> he was tweeting about Berlin and bars. So there's his poll. That was his misspelling, not us. And he tweeted it out at 8 p.m. here, but that would have been 3 a.m. Yeah. in Berlin. So methinks, based on some of the other tweets that night about the universe and peace. Maybe Musk was in Berlin and it was three in the morning and I don't know. Had some beer. You think it's like a 420 kind of thing? All I know is this. He was in Berlin two days earlier tweeting about Berlin. The tweet came out. He misspelled the word yes. We'll see if the SEC takes notice of that tweet, by the way. It's supposed to be a passive stake. That's kind of the point. We'll see. Bertha Coombs, we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you very much. And by the way, Berlin does rock. All right. We are just getting going on this Monday. And when we come back, Calster stepping up its fight with corporate boards over their ESG pledges. A Worldwide Exchange exclusive with the portfolio manager in charge of that push. Plus, much more on Elon Musk and his passive Twitter stake. While last night's tweet can be raising red flags at the SEC. Later on, Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is here with why oil is likely going higher. Maybe a lot higher. Stick around. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or... Get goofy officially, step up like a boss and save the day, or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Tuesday morning. Many investors like to buy stocks and then just stay passive, not challenging anything a company does. But not Calsters. It is the world's largest educator-only pension fund with more than $318 billion under management. And the California-based company says it is going to become more vocal and more active when it comes to the companies it invests in, especially around the issues of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Aisha Mastagni is the Calsters portfolio manager leading that charge, we had a chance to speak with her about their plan and whether this means actually selling stocks of companies that don't meet their goals. We're not divesting of these companies. We like to have a seat at the table. And so what we're doing is we're escalating our votes against directors at those companies that aren't disclosing important information for us as investors. So first, it's around companies that don't have any diversity on their boards, um, and it's at companies 
where they're not disclosing what we consider the very minimal types of metrics that we need when it comes to climate risk. You know, CalSTRS made a pledge to net zero for our own portfolio. And so we need the companies that we invest in to really start disclosing important metrics. And those okay. metrics, yep. Now I was gonna say, so you will continue, you know, XYZ, fake company, you will own shares of XYZ, but if they're not doing, giving the disclosures that you want, if they don't have 30% of their board uh, as female, or if they're failing on other ESG metrics, you will then, is it is launching a proxy attack too strong of a term? That might be a bit strong, but I think what we're doing is we're escalating our proxy votes. We as investors, one of the most powerful tools we have is to support or reject those directors that represent our interest inside the boardroom. And so we're voting against entire boards for example, that don't meet our diversity minimums. And we're voting against entire boards that aren't disclosing the basic information we need when it comes to climate risk disclosure. Now, now you're doing the good work from your seat at the table as one of the biggest institutional funds in the world. But your core job is also to make sure you retur the return of and the return on capital of the teachers and the pensions that you serve. Are there metrics that show that companies that follow these types of ESG or other uh, diversity initiatives, that they actually do I don't, either outperform or at least it does not damage their performance in any way. It's still a great investment is the point. Absolutely. I mean, there are countless academic studies that show that companies that have diverse boards um, perform better. They make better decisions. Um, they manage risk better. And so diversity, I'm so glad that this argument about whether diversity adds value, you know, we've kind of gotten past that argument. And now it's really about how do you onboard new members and how do we do it more quickly? Because we're making progress, but you know, the, the World Economic Forum, their 2020 gender gap report came out and it said it will take 257 years to reach global gender parity at the rate we're going right now. And we don't have that time to wait, to wait. You know, we need our companies to move much faster, which is why we made this aggressive decision to start voting against yeah. those directors that can't meet that minimum. Yeah, I don't know about you, Aisha. I do not have 257 years, maybe 256, maybe 256. I can't let you go without asking about the macro environment. Wow. I mean, uh, we've talked to Chris Aylman, your CIO, a number of times, but since the last time we spoke with you guys, everything's changed. I mean, interest rates have gone up you know, 30 to 50 percent. Inflation remains hotter. The market looked wobbly. We've got a war in southern Europe. Uh, how do you see the macro investing and economic environment right now? You know, so I'm going to I'm going to take a quote from from our CIO, Chris Aylman, since you mentioned him, you know, at CalSTRS. You know, our liabilities are 50, 100 years in the future. So it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So we're not looking at things on a quarter by quarter basis, but it's exactly why things like diversity and climate risk are so important to our portfolio because we can't, we don't want to simply sell out of a company because it's not performing 
this quarter. We're in this for the long haul. And so we need companies to appropriately manage these risks that we think are long-term risks because that's how we're going to uh, better manage the portfolio. And that's how we're going to pay the benefits for the teachers of California. Aisha Mastagni of Calsters joining us from Sacramento, California. All right. Well, that was uh, our thanks to Calsters Aisha Mastagni on that important issue and what Calsters is doing to try to shake up companies. All right. On deck, speaking of ESG and climate change, Diana Olick is coming up next with her continued series, Rising Risks. And in this part, she's taking a closer look at housing and water shortages facing parts of the Southwest. Stick around. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome or welcome back. California just had the driest start to its year in history with the western drought now in its third year. Those conditions are threatening every aspect of the area's economy, including real estate, which is now facing a growing tug of war between a housing shortage and a water shortage. Diana Olick explains as part of her continued series on the rising risks from climate change. On a vast swath of land in Buckeye, Arizona, just west of Phoenix, the Howard Hughes Corporation is developing one of the largest master plan communities in the nation, Douglas Ranch, flooding the desert with housing. There's a shortage on the ground right now of homes that are needed. Howard Hughes CEO David O'Reilly claims water will not be a problem. Every home will have low flow fixtures, natural desert landscaping, drip irrigation, and reclamation. 100,000 homes with big public names like Pulte, Taylor Morrison, Lennar, D.R. Horton, and Toll Brothers expected to build them. And it's just one of more than two dozen developments in the works around Phoenix, all as the West is in the midst of a 1,000-year drought. They're expecting the growth in this area to be a million people. And there isn't the water to sustain that growth, not not with groundwater. ASU Senior Water Research Fellow Kathleen Ferris produced a documentary about the state's 1980 Groundwater Management Act. It requires developers to prove there is 100 years' worth of water in the ground on which they're building. Douglas Ranch sits on the Hasayampa Aquifer, which will be its primary source of water. The problem is that with climate change, there aren't backup water supplies that you can use to save a development that's based totally on groundwater. If it loses all of its water supply, there's no water to back that up. This whole area is clearly at the crossroads of construction and climate, but the U.S. is facing one of the worst housing shortages in history. 
It's estimated we need over a million more homes just to meet the current demand. And the Phoenix area is one of the most active for home construction. I don't think the answer is to tell people that are looking for an affordable home in Arizona, you can't live here, go somewhere else. I think the responsible answer, the thoughtful answer, is to build them affordable homes, but to build it in a self-sustaining manner. Mark Staff is director of ASU's real estate development program at the W.P. Carey School of Business. So should Wall Street be concerned about investing in housing out in Arizona? No. Why not? Because I think that there is the understanding of this particular risk and there is sufficient evidence and facts that support the continued growth based upon what we know today. But Stapp concedes current development plans exacerbate that. I would say that there's a legitimate concern about our future and policymakers are very aware of this. A report just last spring from ASU's Kyle Center for Water Policy warned the amount of groundwater in the Hasayampa sub-basin is considerably less than regulators estimate, and that without a change in direction, the physical groundwater supply underneath Buckeye will decrease and will not be sustainable. The bottom line is that there are places in this state, in this valley, where there are sufficient water supplies to support new growth. We don't need to go way out in the desert and pump groundwater to build but new homes. But the land is cheaper out here. Well, at some point, there's a cost to that. That report also says that the 100-year model for groundwater is constantly changing, especially given the changing climate. The state's Department of Water Resources is now in the process of determining if the basin does, in fact, have 100 years' worth of water. Brian? Uh, so much to talk about there, Diana. I, and I, your point about being cheaper was right. There's a place called Victorville. You probably know it. My dad and I used to ride dirt bikes out there when I was a kid growing up in L.A. Now it's like a suburb of Los Angeles, even though it's, you know, 75 miles out. I get it. Uh, she was talking about there are places that have enough water. Is there a way to, like, replenish the groundwater from other reservoirs to these reservoirs or to move stuff from where the water needs to be. I'm thinking of the movie Chinatown in my head. Well, that's what's been happening in the past. And sometimes developers will even buy water from farmers. But the less water that there is available because of climate change, that is restrictions now on the Colorado River and less water in the reservoirs, then their ability to buy that water, move that water, replenish those areas is less and less possible. Diana, look, an important uh, topic there in a continued series on rising risks of climate change. Diana, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is here on what happens if Europe stops buying Russian oil and why he is sticking with his bullish call for crude. All this, the stock futures are flat to maybe slightly down. Oil is up. And we're back right after this. Big tech back in vogue. The once high-flying stocks flying high once again after a first quarter beatdown. But will these new legs last? Oil finding new legs. It is back on the rise. Will Europe stop buying Russia's oil? Goldman's Jeff Curry is here with why prices may still be headed a lot higher. We call him the King Bluebird. Elon Musk looking to flex his muscle with his new stake in Twitter. 
polling some of the people on changes they might want to the platform. But will the SEC take notice? It is Tuesday, April 5th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back and good Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. Here's how your money and the markets look right now as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Stock futures, eh, they're not giving us a lot of help. A lot of days, there's days where the market's up big or down big. This is not one of those days. This is just a day. It is Tuesday, arguably the worst day of the week. And by the way, if anybody wants to challenge me on that, let me know. Tuesdays, yeah, let's move on to Wednesday. Dow futures are down about 15 points, so but anything could happen at this point. So we are watching, by the way, bond yields because you might have heard a little bit about that inverted yield curve. Well, it is still inverted by one basis point. The 30-year yield still a little bit above the two-year. What that means is basically longer-dated yields are below shorter-dated yields. Does it matter? Some people say it matters a lot, but here's the thing. Coming up in your RBI this morning in a few minutes, we might give you a little bit of comfort around that inverted yield curve and the stock market, that's coming up. So you got to stick around for a few minutes. Oil right now, just over 100 bucks a barrel is the national average for a price of a gallon of gas is $4.19. And you might want to get ready because prices could be headed even higher. Joining us now is Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs, just out with a new note on the commodity super cycle and some of the issues facing the oil market. Jeff, it's, it's great to have you back on. Um, Before we kind of get into your note, Europe is debating today potentially directly sanctioning or even stopping buying Russian oil. If that were to occur, I could see two scenarios. One, Russian oil just keeps flowing, inventories build up, prices could go down, or markets get even tighter and prices go higher. What do you think? Well, they push prices higher because... Europe would have to source barrels somewhere else in the world. Um, So that immediate reaction of having to reshuffle oil around the world would be quite bullish. Um, You know, it won't change anything in terms of the longer term um, implications. But I think doing that, gas is not the the more critical one, not so much oil, which Germany is going to most likely block this. You know, the bottom line, Germany Inc. simply doesn't work um, without that low cost, you know, gas coming through the pipeline from Russia. So they're going to push back on this. It would be, you know, you know, just, you know, short of catastrophic in terms of economic growth to shut those gas pipelines. That's why we take the view it's mutually assured destruction, both on the Russian side as well as on the German side to stop those gas flows. You know, I like to point out the only time they've ever stopped was 1941. Yeah, you know, it is amazing. And you've got companies there. Everybody hates the atrocities that's going on in Ukraine. We totally understand that. But it's also gotten really cold this week in Europe. And there's a risk of people that can't afford to heat their homes. So it's it's really a Hobson's choice. Like, it's an impossible decision, Jeff. Do you think it is possible that Europe would cut it off? I mean, they talk about it, but I don't know where they even make up 10, 20 percent of their power needs from. You know, France is talking about it. Germany is pushing back. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how far these discussions get. But I think it just goes to the point. You know, it, it is it puts an undue pressure on, you know, people for heating their homes, industry to keep operating because you're unable to replace that gas. Oil can be shuffled around because it's on ships. Gas, on the other hand, is much more difficult to shuffle around because it goes through pipelines or LNG tankers, which need special ports to even load, to actually offload 
um, which makes gas the more difficult one. Oil, um, you know, it'd be a little difficult if you put a boycott on oil consumption in Europe of, of Russian oil, but you could deal with it. Gas, on the other hand, simply just cannot be dealt with. Yeah, and that's the case. So let's talk about this. Tomorrow, Jeff, you've got a number of big oil CEOs going to be dragged up in front of Capitol Hill and, and, and yelled at basically by Congress about higher gasoline prices, whether it's justified or not. I'll leave that up to our audience. Who knows? Uh, but I guarantee you I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, listen, we lost a bunch of money for years. Uh, now we're making some money, but there's a structural deficit. How much of what's going on in oil and gas markets right now, Jeff, is caused by years of underinvestment, some of it, by the way, self-inflicted wounds, but a lot of it based on regulatory and policy issues, which, without trying to get too political, simply make it harder, like we just talked about ESG with Calsters earlier in the program, harder to get any money to build new projects. Yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. You know, the term we give it is the revenge of the old economy. This problem dates back yep. to 08, 09, when we saw capital redirected to the new economy, choking off the investment that needed to be put in place going back for at least a decade to grow the underlying supply base. So not only oil, gas, metals, agriculture, the entire old economy. And let's not forget, banks are old economy as well. And so they don't have the capacity right now to expand the capital required to grow the supply base. Now, let's think about this. A year ago, oil was call it $50 a barrel. Today, it's 108. Um, that's twice the amount of working capital this industry needs today than it needed a year ago, which makes it really difficult for everything to operate. And as a result, inventories are being drawn down, which puts upward pressure on, on prices. Liquidation of financial positions like our markets, these, you know, take Brent, WTI, the overall open interest is just collapsing right now because there's not enough capital in the system to support it. Then you take what you're talking about on ESG, you create a really tight supply situation. And I want to point out demand destruction is not a long-term solution. The only long-term solution here is getting capital into the markets. Yeah, you know, and Jeff, there was a report out by your own company, obviously on the stock side. I don't know if you saw it about EV adoption and hybrid adoption by 2040. And my colleague Pippa Stevens wrote a great story about it yesterday. And it, and it talked about how, you know, 50% of the market in the U.S. is going to be EVs or plug-in hybrids by 2040. I actually thought the, the story in the report from Goldman was very bullish oil because if 50% of the market is part of that is plug-in hybrid, which means you're still using fuel. And it also meant that the other 50% of the fleet in the United States is still going to be a traditional internal combustion engine, not to mention India, China, emerging markets. They just want a little bit of what we had 30 years ago. The demand curve for oil longer term still see, I know people don't want to hear it, but it seems strong. No, absolutely. And here's the problem is policies asymmetric. It's focusing on management of demand, as you just you know, pointed out with EVs, and it's not even focusing on how do you wind down the supply of these hydrocarbons. And what we're seeing, ESG is just doing a blatant reduction of capital availability, which reduces the supply, yet they have this longer-term demand outlook that 2040, as you point out, and it creates these massive imbalances that we're witnessing today right now. And it's going to take years to dig out. And again, I want to emphasize, 
it's an old economy problem. It's just not an oil and gas problem, which means, you know, you think about how do you solve any type of physical constraints on economic growth? You have to grow the underlying supply base. And I think that's the critical message here. And the only way you're going to get capital into this market is through higher prices. The way I think about it is these markets are screaming, give me capital, give me capital. They're going to keep going higher and higher and higher until finally capital flows. Yeah, doing the math on the SPR release, Jeff, I read the DOE release. It was confusing, but it looked like 160 million barrels over 180 days. They had 20 million previous, I think. The new one starts May 15th, so just under a million barrels a day is how I read it. Tell me what you think. And is that enough to change the dynamics of oil pricing? You know, it, you know. First of all, you know, we got to see who takes this oil. Remember that the program they announced last November, only about a third of the barrels were taken. Um, and again, you know, the place, the parts of the world that need this oil are not in the United States. They're in places like Europe. So you not, oh, not only need to release that oil, you know, you know, for, within the the North American market, you got to get it to the places where the shortages are to actually. Because think about what the shortage is right now. It's gasoline, refined products. You got to get to the refineries that don't have access to the oil. So there's a lot of question marks. But your math is right. Somewhere around a million barrels per day. But let's look at what's lost. We lost somewhere around 1.4, 1.5 million barrels per day of Russian oil. Then you had that problem with the Kazakhstan. Throw another million barrels per day on top of that. And demand growth as you come out of lockdowns, and likely you're going to see China come out of its current COVID problem. Demand's going to grow higher. Supply's not there. You need a lot more than a million barrels per day to fill that gap. Yeah, and it's hard for our viewers to believe, but there's still a lot of Russian oil still on the high seas. A lot of that, at least currently, is destined for the United States. I think the last ship is supposed to hit port like April 15th. By the way, Jeff, I don't know if you heard from him, but I ran into your roommate from Pepperdine at a charity fundraiser, and he told me to call you Hefe. He said, he said call him Hefe. So I hope that's not offensive to you, but... What a random run-in, your freshman roommate from Pepperdine University, Jeff. I just wanted to pass along that random but interesting Hefe, message, I Jeff. I appreciate you coming on. He, he said you wouldn't be upset. And I said, is he going to be mad? He said, no. He said he hadn't heard it in a while, but he said, do that. It's all good. So I hope it's all good, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> that was a random run-in. All right. On a far more serious note, let's get down to the latest out of Ukraine. That country's president sent to address the United Nations Security Council for the first time later on this morning. Panel set to meet to discuss what appears to be widespread and deliberate killings of civilians by Russian forces. Ahead of that appearance, Volodymyr Zelensky warning that atrocities in a settlement near Kiev could be worse than the devastation seen in Bukha. Russia's U.N. ambassador is accusing Ukraine in the West of a, quote, false flag attempt to blame Russian troops for those atrocities. In the meantime, the Treasury Department has stopped the Russian government from paying holders of its sovereign debt from reserves held at American banks. That move eats into Moscow's holdings of U.S. dollars and brings it closer to a possible default on its global debt. And more sanctions on Russia by the Biden administration could be coming as soon as this week. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan saying the penalties would target elements of the Russian economy fueling its war, hinting toward more directly on energy. All right, coming up, Elon Musk taking on Twitter. But will the SEC have something to say about that? That's ahead, but right now, a quick hit on a few of your other top headlines happening now. 
Block, revealing that a former employee accessed and downloaded customer data from its cash app subsidiary. This is the company formerly known as Square. This is not the tax filing company H&R Block. Block saying the company who had access to the info as part of their job took information including brokerage account numbers, portfolio values, and holdings. SEC Chair Gary Gensler saying his agency planning greater oversight of the crypto markets. Gensler saying part of the plan includes registering and regulating crypto platforms, adding the SEC will partner with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And Exxon says it expects its profit in the latest quarter to top $9 billion thanks to oil's price climb, but adds that thinner margins on chemicals and hits from leaving Russia will offset some of that profit. Worldwide Exchange is back. All right, welcome or welcome back. It has only been 23 hours since Elon Musk disclosed his more than 9% stake in Twitter. Do you remember where you were when the news crossed? But he's already making waves. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO tweeting just after 8 p.m. last night or 2 a.m. if he's still in Germany as he was the day earlier. Do you want an edit button? He misspelled yes, which maybe explains the 2 a.m. thing if he was in Germany. Anyway... Musk got more than 2 million responses and a majority saying yes. But with that little tweet, Musk is already, according to some, crossing the line between passive shareholder and involved investor. Keep in mind, if Musk did indeed want to enact change at Twitter, he would need to file that with securities regulators. Arjun Karpal joining us now from London. Arjun, uh, aside the fact that pretty much 99.9% .9 of the people are going to want an edit button because why there isn't one, nobody can seem to make sense of. Uh, is Musk going to be in trouble for that little tweet on the platform he is now a big owner of? Well, the regulators will be watching this very closely, Brian. And the reason very much is because Elon Musk owns 9.2% of the company. And even though he is a passive uh, shareholder, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. require anyone who acquires more than 5% of the company through common shares to disclose that within 10 days. Now, Elon Musk uh, has left it longer than that period of 10 days to disclose that. Uh, and the SEC will be watching this very closely and could take action uh, on that. That, which would result historically in a fine. Now, these fines have tended to be quite small, but we'll have to wait and see how it works for Elon Musk. Now, remember, Elon Musk has, of course, had uh, some history with the SEC back in 2018. Uh, the regulators uh, charged Elon Musk with making false and misleading statements about taking Tesla private. Uh, and there's been legal wrangling since, including over whether his tweets need to continue to be legaled by his law team uh, as well. So clearly regulators will be watching this, given the rules, they haven't yet taken any action. Yeah, and, and of course, by the way, it must, of course, crazy like a fox. If you want an edit button, maybe the best way is to misspell one of the words on purpose, just to kind of make your case. I don't think that, uh, that escaped anybody's notice, Arjun. Uh, listen, Elon Musk uh, is a huge Twitter user. I think he's got 80 million Twitter followers. I know a majority of the country in the world does not use Twitter. I get that. But for those of us who do, particularly in the media, it's an invaluable resource in so many different ways, right? Still kind of a small platform. Any indication of what Musk sees interest in? Any? And just wildly speculate, my friend, if you'd like to. It's early. 
Well, he's certainly been very active, Brian, in coming out with suggestions for the platform. You mentioned there this, this poll around an edit button. That's one sort of aspect of it. And what's interesting is the current Twitter CEO, uh, uh, Parag Agarwal, actually retweeted that, uh, saying uh, the consequences of this poll will be important, just sort of mirroring and perhaps tongue-in-cheek what something uh, Elon Musk had said as well. But I think it's quite clear. Elon Musk has had a lot of criticisms over the platform uh, in the past few years. He's, he's uh, questioned Twitter's commitment to free speech. He's also worried, he said in the past, about what he calls the de facto bias with the Twitter algorithm and even suggested that should be open source uh, in the interest of transparency. Uh, Musk has also yeah. spoken about building his own uh, social media platform. So these are things perhaps we may see from Musk. Uh, the question is, how much sway ultimately will he have with the CEO and management? And I think that's going to be very key as people watch this story unfold. Yeah, just taking the, the, the stake is a huge endorsement, but I think your point is well taken, Arjun. A lot of people have complained about some of the stories that either make it or don't make it on Twitter and that they decide in some ways what's, what's, what is newsworthy at the time, which may change over time, and maybe Musk will try to change that. Arjun Karpal, thank you very much. Do appreciate it. All right, on deck. Are you worried about recession and the recent moves of the bond market? Well, if you are, your morning RBI may give you a little comfort, and it's ahead. Plus, what does star fund manager Dan Baru think about all of it? Well, we'll ask him. We'll get a few stock picks as well. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Time now for your morning RBI, the most random but interesting thing that you may hear all day, CNBC style, of course. And today, let's talk stocks, yield curve inversions, and history. Because we're going to try to do something that honestly may be impossible. Make talking about obscure moves in the bond market actually interesting, especially at 5.50 in the morning. And the best way to do that is to take a little trip back in the time machine to see how it's worked out in the past. Well, Goldman Sachs has crunched the numbers, so let's check them out. The yield on the two-year has gone above the yield on the 10-year, that's the inversion, nine times since 1965. It happened twice in the 1960s, twice in the 70s, once in the 80s, once in the 90s, twice in the aughts, and the last time in 2019. And despite worries about a recession as a result of it, stocks have actually done pretty well. In both one and two years after most inversions, the S&P 500 was higher. In fact, higher six of those nine times. In other words, 67% of the time after the two-year yield went above the 10-year, you made money in the stock market just buying the S&P 500. And you made pretty good money. Goldman notes the median return from those six times was a gain of 16% over two years, higher than the 9% gain over the first year on average. Okay, there's a lot there, especially at this hour. So let's bottom line it. Stocks can go up even when the yield curve inverts. And it's because the recessions that result may not come for a few years after the inversion. Of course, as you hear on every financial commercial on this network, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Well, anyway, up six of nine times did mean the market fell 33% of the time. In fact, the S&P 500 posted pretty steep losses in 1965, 73, and 2000. And this year, in many ways, does look a lot like 1973 economically. But even if we ultimately hit a recession, which seems likely to many at this point, stocks can and have still made you a lot of money even after that yield curve inverts. History. It's random but interesting. Joining us now is 
Dan Vru and dive a little further into this. He is chair and CIO at Palisade Capital Management. Dan, uh, welcome back. I tried to. I'm not saying stocks are going up. It's not my job. But I'm just trying to say the nine times in history, Goldman notes the markets have gone up for two years. Six of those nine times after the inversion. What do you make of? Is that just historical garbage, or is there something there? No, I mean it, it, that makes a lot of sense, and it's a great setup for how you should be investing now. Uh, that you know some of the things we forget about because we've been through this very long period of financial repression. Today, valuations really matter. You really have to pay attention to the price earnings ratio that you're paying for a stock. It's not just good enough to look at it versus say a five-year historical average. You've got to look at it on an absolute basis. The PE on the S and P 500 is 20, which is reasonable. But then when you look at the equal weighted S&P 500, you're paying under 18. It means that you should look beyond the biggest cap names that are driving the index. They also are driving the valuations right now. We've had this surge in technology, this resurgence in in the, the technology stocks. Yesterday was a great day. I think some of it, there's a halo effect off of the Twitter news. But, you know, in general, I think you want to look beyond those companies and find companies with great balance sheets generating a lot of free cash flow that have high financial returns like return on invested capital and return on equity. Yeah, and it's also, I guess, a measure of the fact that the market and the economy, as we've said a billion times, and I'll say it again, are very different things. They are related, but ultimately they are different. All right, Dan, we love having you on because you do the deep dive into, into companies, you offer stock picks, including some that are more in the small and mid-cap style as well. Tell us about Fortiv, F-T-V, and why this is a name that you love. Yeah, so, so Fortiv was actually spun out of our very favorite company, Danaher Corporation. Uh, so you're getting a lot of the same ethos and, and um, you know, just the culture that, that's made Danaher so, so uh so successful over many, many decades. Fortive is a multi-industry industrial company. The leverage is very modest in the company. But here's the key thing, Brian. This is a company as well as others that can make cash acquisitions that are accretive to their earnings. That's very important because these types of companies can take advantage of whatever environment they're presented with. Yeah, and I know you love Dan, her DHR, it's still an FTV and DHR, I assume, is still on that list. Another company, yes. Dan, that we talked about in the CNBC Pro event a while back, but I know you're sticking with, is Zebra Technologies. We talk about all these big cap tech stocks. Zebra, not right. a name we talk about ever, if at all. Who is this company and why do you like them? So, you know, it's, re it's remarkable that more people don't really know uh, about Zebra. First of all, it was upgraded at J.P. Morgan yesterday. Uh, with uh, over a $500 price target, you know, the share that that makes the stock pretty attractive at these levels. Um, you know, Zebra is the number one company in the barcode printing and data capture space. They're, they're, they've made several acquisitions in the robotics and software area. I mean, you cannot run a, uh, a warehouse <clears throat> a warehouse facility or any kind of a logistics facility without Zebra Tech without Zebra's technology powering it, uh, particularly now as supply chains get back to normal, their equipment and services are going to be that much more important as we go on. 
I love it. Fortiv, Donaher, and Zebra Technologies. New names, bringing them to the audience and giving us a little comfort about that yield curve inversion, which we may or may not have talked about a little bit on this very network. Dan Vru, always appreciate it. Have a great day, Dan. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. And folks, always appreciate you getting up early with us or listening to the podcast if you're somewhere else in the world or just like to sleep in as we do once in a while, but it doesn't happen much. We'll see you tomorrow right here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk and the gang are next. Have a spectacular day. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.